All right, well, did you hear about those Kentucky Wildcats that won a national championship yesterday? Did you hear about that? It's in that powerhouse sport, volleyball. And I was so excited when I saw that. And I thought I'd share that with you because I know that you're not. Ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, it was amazing. It, uh, the team apparently had been playing very, very, very well. And then they just really turned it on here at the end. And I don't even remember who they beat. And maybe it was Texas or something. Maybe that. Yeah, maybe that's it. Okay, well, now that that's done, we are in a series entitled, Why Believe? And the key verse that I keep coming back to, and I want to read it to you again here this morning, and this is from 1 Peter 3, verse 15. This is so crucial because we can't, we can't effectively do what we've been talking about as far as witnessing and encouraging other people who may have different views about things or even in our own in our own understandings we can't really really be confident of what we're doing if we've not done this first first here it is in your hearts though set apart christ as lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, I don't know. Most of the time, we don't actively maybe go out and do that. Maybe we should do it more. But what's going to happen if you live your life having set apart Jesus as Lord, if you live that way, then there's going to be people sooner or later that are going to say, why are you this way? How are you this way? And then you'll be Once you set Jesus apart as the leader, the guide, the director, he's the one that's going to speak through you, through his Holy Spirit. When that's all established, then you will be able to lead others to an understanding that could affect their eternity. And so this is a crucial series of messages, more so than I thought when we first started. And I really didn't didn't appreciate it maybe at the beginning. We began back on Easter on looking at why Christians believe in Jesus to begin with. Specifically, and we talked about the resurrection from the dead. Then we looked at reasons why we, we believe God. And last week we talked about, well, why, why should we believe the Bible? And that's actually the first part of what I'm doing today. Especially in light of so many translations that are everywhere and, and questions people have. We saw how the integrity of the scripture stands up in terms of archaeology and history. And we've covered quite a bit of ground. But since the Bible is such a, a flashpoint in terms of whether or not people are going to believe, we need to consider another set of questions. This is kind of the, this, we, we titled this part two of Why Believe the Bible. Last week we looked at scripture from the outside and we considered history. Does it line up there? Archaeology, does this support the things that you find in the Bible? And is the text supported, in a sense, in terms of the manuscript evidence and all the things there and so forth? We, we considered that. But this morning, I want us to look at it from the inside. What it actually says and how sometimes the content of the Bible makes it hard for people to believe. So let's get started with one of the biggest reasons why people say that they don't believe the Bible and it has to do with something we'll just call it an interpretation. I mean, skeptics claim that 
you can interpret the Bible any way you want to. Therefore, it means nothing, really, because there's nothing really there to believe. You can make the Bible say anything, and if you can do that, ultimately what happens, it really says nothing. But is that really true? Is that really the case? Or is that just something that's floating around on the currents of public opinion and modern culture? What you find in the Bible as you actually read it, can, can you testify to it? Is that what you find? And the answer is no. 99% of the Bible doesn't take a whole lot of heavy lifting to understand, especially in regard to interpretation, much less leave much debate as to what it actually says. Here's some examples that are pretty clear. Here's Deuteronomy 6, chapter four, chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so is there one God or two gods here? Only one God. Exodus 20, verse 15, it says, you shall not steal. So is it okay to steal or not? Nothing fuzzy here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, it says, Jesus died and rose again. So did Jesus die and rise again? The Bible says that he did. See, the Bible's not hard to, it's not a hard read. It's not even a confusing one. It's very direct here. But then will somebody, somebody will sometimes say, but well, what about when it comes to, and then they'll bring up science again. And we talked about this a little bit already. I mean, how can anyone believe in creation in six days? And people say, I just can't, can't accept that. That's insane. Now, is it? Well, you have to start out with something. And we haven't talked about this yet. But there's an understanding about the Bible. It has to do with its nature. You know, the nature of science. Science has a nature. Well, the Bible has a nature. In other words, it's, it's a different kind of understanding. It's quite possible to frame a conversation in a way that will do justice to both. I want you to listen carefully. See, science is, by definition, the attempt to discover knowledge through empirical observation and verification. In other words, what science can know, what it can explore, is primarily what's available to us through our five senses, did you bring those with you today? Okay, so your, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your sense of being able to see, uh, hearing, touching. And, and, and if it can, can't be examined in a tangible scientific manner, then from a scientific point of view, it can't really be known or explored through science. That makes sense? So you can imagine how this automatically limits science when it comes to questions about the meaning of life or the meaning of truth, the nature of truth, and particularly the existence of God, much less anything to do with his, his person or his character. Science can point perhaps to the existence of a God, and many believe that it does, but science will never ever be able to prove, or for that matter disprove, Many of life's ultimate realities, and it especially will not be able to answer life's ultimate questions. And that's where I want us to kind of, I mean, if it's beyond our five senses, if, if, if we're kind of limited in that area, but if it's beyond that, then science is of limited help. But when it's but is it the same when it comes to the Bible? Well, let's take a look at this. We have to take Scripture on its own terms and let it operate within its limits, too. 
You see, a science is limited when it speaks on spiritual issues, okay? Things that are transcendent issues, metaphysical issues. Then we need to be honest and admit that the Bible doesn't often speak directly about science. It doesn't deal with that. In short, the Bible does not pretend to position itself, hear me, as a textbook on science. It doesn't even try to answer most of the questions that science is asking. And this is extremely important to understand, and here's why. Because most of the supposed conflicts that people bring up between science and the Bible comes when science tries to speak outside of its realm or when people try to make the Bible speak outside of its realm. So let me tell you where the Bible's coming from. If science is dependent upon examining only what you can see and taste and touch and hear or smell, then where is the Bible coming at from? Uh, Where is it coming from? Is it looking at reality in the same way, is it? And the answer is no. There are three ways of looking at reality, at least in Western thinking. Here they are. First is the Greek way. Now, this is largely descriptive and explanatory. See, the Greek mind, and by the way, we, we're a product of both the Greek and the Roman cultures. Everything we understand, our educational system, the way we approach so many things comes from this. It's kind of our ancestry. But the Greek way of looking at the world has an emphasis on rationality. Aristotle, for example, felt that you could, if you could define a thing, then you had exhausted everything about it, if you, if you could figure it out. And when you approach something with Greek questions, you tend to be searching for what, what is the shape of this or the substance of it or the definition. Somebody might ask, well, what is, what is water? Well, they'd ask, well, what does it look like? You know, well, what does it feel like? It's all about description. That's the Greek way. The second way, though, is the Latin way, which is primarily concerned with methodology, the way things are done. A Latin question would ask, well, how does this work? Or a Latin question might say, well, how do we do this? What are the steps or the stages involved in it? Now, most of us, because of our upbringing in this country, we look at the world in Greek and Latin ways because that's what we've been taught to do from the time we started school. So it's natural that we take our Greek and Latin questions and we try to apply them to the Bible. And the problem is you can't always ask Greek or Latin questions of Scripture because it's not a Greek or Latin book. It's a Hebrew book. It comes from a totally different, entirely different way of looking at reality. The New Testament may have been written in Greek, but it was with a a Hebrew worldview. And the Hebrew way of looking at things is very, very different than our Greek and Latin heritage. The Hebrew mind is concerned with what a thing is for and does it work. Matters of usage and and utility and value, that's what's the big deal. This is why, you you may not know this, you can read all four biographies of the life of Jesus Christ and never once will you come across a description of Jesus. Did you know that? I mean... Four biographies, four different authors, yet he's never described physically in any of them. You know why? 
to the Hebrew mind didn't make any difference. It didn't matter what he looked like. It never entered their minds to describe him. I mean, we read the Old Testament that an angel visited. You know, the question was not, well, I wonder what this angel looked like. Because it wasn't important to the Hebrew way of thinking. Their question more was, what does the angel want us to do? Now, you bring this to the science stuff. We come to look, we look at a book like Genesis, and we find that it says two main things. The Bible says just two main things about creation. God did it, and it was very good. That's all it says. That's it. There's no commentary. That's what you find. This is one and two. Now, if you are scientifically inclined, what do you want to know? Well, we want to know how God did it. But Genesis doesn't tell us how God did it, only that he did, because it's a, it's a Hebrew philosophy or worldview behind it. And this is what drives some of us crazy sometimes, because, you know, we want a Greek and Latin answer to my Greek and Latin questions. You know, that's what we're after looking at. And when you talk to somebody or witness to somebody, you need to kind of find out a little bit about where they're coming from because it makes a difference into how we teach and preach and encourage, especially it works in private witnessing one-on-one where you're dealing with a neighbor or friend or family member and, and you don't have the, the religious trappings or things there. It's just, just two people talking about things. We used to do a lot more of this as far as conversing about things in life, values, philosophies, all these kind of things. We don't do it quite so much. Our, uh, our country is not, well, they say they have inquiring minds, but I don't sure, I'm not sure that's really true anymore. But anyway, if you're scientifically inclined and you want to know all this stuff, well, you're going to be, well, just get ready for disappointment because the scriptures are not going to really deal with it that way. But some people don't want to be disappointed. So you know what they do? They try to make and force the Bible to say something and be something that is not. They want to force it to answer things and answer questions that it really doesn't deal with. And that is what has created so much of the conflict and the, and the confusion. The Bible is full of supernatural events. Things like miracles, you know, all these kind of things. Everything from the parting of oceans all the way to the feeding of thousands. Over and over we see this. And that presents for some people scientific problems. In fact, it may be the scientific problem. You say, listen, you just can't have a disruption of the physical laws of the, of the universe that way. I mean, miracles just are impossible. And you're absolutely right. They are impossible. It's the one thing that does go against science. And the Bible's 100% guilty of flying in the face of what science can do. However, it's only an intellectual problem if there is no God. It is not a problem if there is. And if you would admit and get anyone to admit the possibility, the possibility of God, then miracles are no big deal. Because a miracle, by definition, is a suspension of the physical laws of the universe. They're supernatural interventions by God that circumvent natural laws. That's what makes them a miracle. Do you follow what I'm saying? So if if there is a God on the loose, and I believe there is, miracles are no big deal. It just means 
there's something, and more specifically, someone who's bigger than science, outside of science, Lord of science, and Lord of the universe. All right, are you tracking? All right, let's review. The Bible isn't so hard to understand or interpret that nobody can find out what it says, and there's no conflict between science when you read it fairly in light of what it's intending to say. In fact, if you know much about the history of science, you will know that the very beginning roots of this thing, the people that were devout scientists, were also devout believers in the early days. And the reason they even pursued science is because they believed there was an intelligence behind it and behind the universe. And so if you looked at it scientifically, they could find out more about that person or the eternal principles and laws that went with him. Now, having said all of that, there's one area, though, that has begun, I think it's our greatest stumbling block at all when we come to the Bible. Are you ready? Already or not, here's what it has to do with. This is the, this is the sticking point to 90%, 95% perhaps of the people, or the problems people had with the Bible. It's called moral declaration. What the Bible says about what's right and what is wrong, good and what is bad, true and what is false, moral and what is immoral. I mean, that, I mean isn't that the big issue when you think about it? People you talk to, your neighbors and friends, if you're totally honest on this one, you know, people would say, well, just take all the sex stuff in the Bible. It says no to sex outside of marriage. But our culture would like it to be yes. In fact, many have said yes. It says no to the pursuit of same-sex behavior. And it lifts marriage highly as a sacred covenant rooted in the very order of creation between, between a man and a woman. And the Bible says no to any other arrangement. In fact, it says no to a lot of reasons for divorce in a very easy divorce culture. You had an affair, left your spouse, married your lover, and you know that something in the Bible would say no to that, so you don't want anything to do with the Bible. It's a moral declaration that you don't agree with. You like to watch porn, or you're pretty sure when it comes to porn, the Bible is thou shalt not, instead of thou shalt. So what do you keep doing? I mean, what do you do when you come to the Bible with those kinds of, of attitudes? It's going to be a collision course. And if you're trying to witness to your neighbors, your friends, or family, while you and I still have to settle these things as well in our own hearts and life, you're, you're going to have a challenge if you don't understand where so many today in our world are coming from. Because everywhere they see and everything that they hear and the theme behind almost all movies and what we call entertainment is all about human beings doing whatever they doggone well want to do. And there's no mention of God in it unless it's taking his name in vain in some conversation. And I know that's true. And in conversations about belief, particularly if you have conversations with guys, all you need to do is just ask one question. Tell me about your sex life. And suddenly, you just see it all over their faces. There's a, there's a, there's a shadow life there, you know, and, and uh, there's no way that he is going to let anything interfere with what he wants to do. No way they're going to let the Bible enter into that. See, that's our challenge. It's not that the Bible's so hard to understand. It's just that we don't really 
But we understand it well. We just don't want to do what it says. And again, if we're going to teach others and guide others and, and help in the Spirit's work of evangelizing others, we have to come into that with a humility of our own. Because we don't get all this stuff right all the time either. And that's what people are looking for. They want an authentic dialogue with humble people who know they don't have all the answers, but yet they think they do, and they found the source of living water that was talked about in the Word. That's, that's the kind of thing. They want us to hear a witness that is not just what you're saying with your words, but you can, for the most part, as human as we are, back it up with the way that we're living. So what do you do when the Bible and you or your friends run into these kind of collision courses? I mean, how does, how does your behavior and the Bible and the whole idea of whether you believe, how does that all play out? I would say in conversations, particularly with guys, it's really a challenge. But if the Bible is the word of God and you're playing these games, then all you've got to do is to get serious about one factor because your eternity is on the line. There's some games that we play to avoid this. So I want to talk about here's Here's, here's something we call the cosmic exception clause. Maybe you've used this in your life. You know what it means in the Bible says in a particular area of your life, sexually or financially or relationally. We know what it says. But we think in my case, in my situation, it doesn't apply. There's that cosmic exception. I'm unique. We think we're different. Our circumstance, well, this allows me to get a, get a pass on this one. That's the cosmic exception clause. But then there's a second way. We play this one out, and it's much, much more subtle. It's called the buffet approach. You ever gone to a buffet? Don't you just love? I really miss a China Star here in Ellsville. They don't have that buffet anymore. What an excellent buffet, huh? I still eat there. I just have to go through a little few hoops to get it done. But it's good stuff. But with a buffet, isn't it neat? You just pick and choose it. Uh, someone calls it grazing, you know, kind of graze through there. You know how it works. You grab your tray, you start down the line, and that's some things that you like. And there's just some things that you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. But that's okay. Because the only thing that ends up on your plate is the things that you like, Right? We pile it high with stuff that goes down easy. That's what we tend to try to do also with the Bible. Some stuff is just never put on your tray. But since you're eating, since you've got stuff on your plate, you still pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that I'm such a good little boy or girl. And you end up with some comfortable insights and principles on things like marriage and parenting and life and yet you pass up the uncomfortable lifestyle changing applications on money way you handle things like sex and your character but beside of the cosmic exception clause and the buffet approach this one is more direct and is becoming so much more common in our country this is the flat out rejection approach it's when you say Well, because the Bible says this, teaches this, upholds this, stands for that, and I don't. I don't have anything to do with the Bible. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to believe what pretty much everybody in our culture believes, because that's more believable to me than Scripture. 
And you probably know someone that has that perspective. Now, if that describes someone you know, or if it describes you, you need to understand what you're saying. You're saying that the Bible is not from God, which is fine. You can believe that. But make sure you know that's what you're saying. That the Bible is not inspired by God. The Bible is not designed for you to just come and pick and choose the things you like and throw away the ones you don't. You're saying the Bible's not inspired. I mean, sometimes, and by the way, we don't want to water this word down. Sometimes we do. In, in, being inspired, we think it was something like wonderfully creative, you know, or we use it in terms of thinking of music. And, and you know, when David writes a song, he's been just inspired, you know. That's what, isn't that right? Yeah, well, I just thought since you're so close, I don't get to see you because usually you're up in the balcony saying amen. So you can still say it from there too, anytime you want. But here's the point. This idea of inspiration as it's related to the Bible is so much more profound than any way we humans could come up with the idea. When the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, who, by the way, Jesus handpicked him and appointed him, he describes this in his second letter to Timothy. He put it this way. Listen to this. This is a profound verse. All scripture is God breathed. And by the way, that's the word. We get our English word from that a Greek word. We get inspiration from that. All scripture is God breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the, the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, this word inspired is a very particular Greek word in the Greek language. It literally means God breathed it out. God it came out of the inside the very character of who God is. This is the idea behind everything about the word of God. It was ex- exhaled by God. It came it was produced from him. It came out of him written by humans, but they were humans that were moved and only moved by God to produce what he wanted them to do. This, by the way, is the only reason we've been able to find all of these manuscripts and all these other things I told you about over this series. The reason that's there is because God has allowed that to be preserved. He's allowed that to be found. So we could be reminded over and over again that what's here is it was written by humans, but it was guided and moved by God himself. But that's not all. Not only are we saying that scripture is not true if we take this viewpoint that there's no such thing as inspiration. You've also concluded that Jesus is not who he said he was either. You, know, you can't have Jesus and, and get rid of everything else because everything else pointed to Jesus in scripture. Jesus said it was God breathed. So you can't throw that away. Let me, let me read this unqualified endorsement of the Old Testament scripture. This is from Jesus. He said, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. Talking about the Old Testament. Until everything has been accomplished. John 10, 35, the scripture says, again, the scripture cannot be broken. And in what may be one of the most intriguing statements he made in relationship to the Old Testament, he, here's this quote. Jesus quoted this from Mark, in Mark 12, 36. He's talking about David. Remember King David? He said, David himself, speaking 
by the Holy Spirit declared thus and so. And he went on to quote David in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Now, now clearly, to our Lord, the Old Testament was not an ordinary collection of, of writings. He referred to the writings of the Old Testament as being inspired. Those that conveyed the very words and thoughts of God. And here's Jesus at the center of embracing New Testament theology, of course. He was right there. A lot of it was just a record of what he said and did and taught. But also because what isn't the teaching of Jesus is the teaching of those that are set apart to teach in his name. The Apostle Paul and Peter. and others. We've got their letters all over the New Testament. There's an extension of Jesus himself and his communication. And this is really important because a lot of people miss this. What we have in the Bible, especially the New Testament, isn't the life and teaching of Jesus. Uh, it it com- comes from a very select and special group of people, these apostles. In fact, the word apostle means one who has been sent. And the mission Jesus sent them on was that of teaching. The word used here is only of the 12 apostles are chosen by Jesus, a handful of others, most notably Paul. But it's interesting to me that the apostles had received this unique commission from Jesus himself, and it was never repeated. It wasn't given to anybody. They were to assume a prophetic role and speak God's word to people. These are the men who were to speak in Jesus' name and carry his word to others. Isn't it interesting? In a sense, we're still carrying out that commission, even to this very day. And when you preach and teach from the word of God, you're doing so with the authority of Jesus himself behind us. It's not our authority. It's not mere men. Jesus even said these words recorded in the New Testament book of Matthew. He who receives you, he told these people, when you go out to preach, they, those who receive you, are receiving me. Each apostle was given a special inspiration from Jesus himself through the Spirit. And their teaching and their leadership was to be the very foundation of the church throughout all these centuries. And it it has been. And our church seeks to build upon that very same foundation as well. John 16, 12, verse 12 and 13 says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. Which is why the teachings of the apostles were considered scripture. And the mark of anybody, uh, what would be included in the New Testament, understanding that, it was very simple. They asked the question, if they wanted to find out what to do with something, was it written by or based on the teaching of Jesus or one of his apostles? That was how books got included. How books were, there's a lot of writings and religious writings of old. This is why when you read the second chapter of Acts, which records the history of the early churches, says they, the early church, devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. They knew exactly what Jesus had done. They had heard him appoint these individuals. They had heard him prepare them and for the role they would have. They knew that Peter and John and James and Paul were, were just men, but not ordinary men, because their teaching was not theirs. It was the teaching of Christ. And if you received them, that was to receive Jesus Christ. You rejected them, that was to reject them. See how powerful this is? So you and I are welcome to reject Jesus, reject the Bible, but you can't, what you can't do is accept Jesus and then reject the Bible. And you say, well, I don't, but I don't reject Jesus. Okay, well then, 
trust him enough to trust his word. It's a little crazy to say, Jesus, I've come to you for my eternity and to save for my sins, and I'm banking all of eternity on this, and I believe you're God himself in, in human form, and that you did miracles, and that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. But this book of yours, I, I can't buy into that. That, make, that doesn't make sense. Frankly, Jesus never gave you that option. So when it comes to believing the Bible... You may still have some issues about some things. I can get that. But I still urge you to look into the Bible's vision on you. Look for what the Bible says of the vision God has for us, for our sexuality, for marriage, for family. It's vision for our relationships. It's vision for parenting in a sense. Every part of life, how is to be stewarded which means cared for and, and protected, and, 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 and that vision's in Scripture. This is why, while we might be feeling the need to explain the Scriptures and defend them to some people, it's so much more important that we get into the vision of Scripture ourselves. How much time do you spend in Scripture a week? What's really going on in your reading habits? When it comes to believing the Bible... You may still have some issues yourselves. I can see that. But I still urge you to look at the Bible's vision. I'll tell you right now, at this point of history that we happen to be in, our culture's vision for all that stuff and the Bible's vision for all that stuff could not be more different. you got two visions before you. So be really careful. I challenge you to examine the Bible's position and you compare that to what you get daily fed from the culture. And then ask yourself which one you want to give your one and only life to. Let me pray with you as David comes to prepare for our closing. Father, we have so much to learn. You have given us opportunity after opportunity to we come to church, we have all kinds of resources. There's never been a time information was not so available to us on everything. But we as your children, we as the church, must see that our primary source of insight and understanding, that the only sure source we have of information about you, Father, we need to make this front and center. Help us as a congregation, Father, to get back into the Word. Help us maintain and learn and grow and always be asking your Holy Spirit to make changes and tweaking things in our life as they need to be done. Father, may we never forget that our faith, our religion, we, we, we were known in the past as people of the book. Lord, may we never lose that distinction. May we wear it with honor that if it's not in the Scriptures, we can read it and we can maybe understand some things, learn about history, whatever. But if it doesn't come from the Bible, it has no authority over our life. And Lord, if we're going to go into this next few years and into the future, making a difference in this country, then our church and every other church is going to have to get back to that identification mm-hmm. that we're people of the book. Amen. And that as a result, we live our lives differently. And it changes our attitudes. And people then will then see by the quality of our lives 
and our willingness to have let Jesus Christ be set apart in our hearts. Then when they ask their questions, we can give them an answer that's credible and one that is meaningful and life-changing for them. And again, you will do what you've done for all the centuries is reproduce one Christian after another through these simple teachings. You did all the heavy lifting on the cross. Mm-hmm. So Lord, help us now to, to carry this. And it is, it is a burden to some extent. It is a responsibility. Every one of us are to be ready at any moment, the scripture says, to give an answer to those who have questions about our faith. And we have one more message on our series, Father, and I pray that this next week that you will bring us to deep conviction as we ask the question, what do we do now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.